Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Disrupt's podcast. I'm Tom Jackson. And I'm Gabriella Mulligan. Each fortnight, we bring you all the latest news from the African startup ecosystem, plus interviews with special guests. This week, we're talking conservation tech with Kenya-based microforestry platform Kamaza and finding out about a new entrepreneur-run VC fund. But first, here's all the latest news from the last two weeks. A relatively quiet couple of weeks across the continent, lit up by a handful of investments and the arrival of some new funds. It was a busy fortnight for the South Africa-based business accelerator Grindstone, which launched a new investment vehicle called Grindstone Ventures, dedicated to providing early-stage equity funding to its cohorts. The accelerator also announced the 20 South African scale-ups that have been selected for its latest cohorts in Cape Town and Johannesburg. Startups are on the fundraising trail across Africa. The Ghana-based Africa Foresight Group, which has developed a platform offering access to the largest network of freelance management consultants on the continent, raised a seed funding round worth over $700,000, while the Lagos-based transport startup Plenty Waka secured 300k in pre-seed funding to expand to Abuja. Egyptian e-commerce startup Dresscode, meanwhile, raised a six-figure US dollar seed round. A couple of key rounds in South Africa, where diabetes health and insurtech startup Guidepost raised further funding to help it increase its impact, with Rand Merchant Investments and Endeavour the backers. AI and data annotation startup Enabler, meanwhile, raised funding from new VC fund Entrepreneurs for Entrepreneurs Africa to kickstart its operations and target international markets. We'll talk more about E4E later in the podcast. All of these rounds pale in comparison to a mega round secured by one innovative company late last month. Kenyan company Kamaza hit the headlines announcing its $28 million Series B round. What makes this all the more exciting is that Kamaza is a tech-enabled conservation venture, disrupting the forestry space in Kenya. Quite an unusual area. The company works with smallholder farmers to repurpose degraded agricultural land to plant and harvest sustainable wood for industrial and commercial use using AI and satellite data to map existing tree growth and real-time mobile apps on the ground to track farmer progress. Its microforestry model represents a paradigm shift in the industry from large, costly plantations to distributed partnerships with local farmers. So far, Kamaza has planted 6 million trees with 25,000 smallholders. Gabriella caught up with CEO Tevis Howard and CTO Tiffany Card to talk about the funding news, the tribulations of securing growth funding in Africa, as well as how tech has the potential to change environmental conservation efforts across the continent. Can you tell us about your experience raising your Series B round? You know, Kamaz has been been really fortunate to have had great funders and investors along the way. Um, But this particular round took us over two years to raise. Um, And... Uh, you know, a, a lot of this was about finding uh, finding the sort of investors with courage to take the leap into Kamas at this stage. I think what what we've learned um, is that in this in this moment in time, there's a, a particular gap in in your sort of impact investing or emerging market venture private equity capital markets that that uh, sits between. Early, uh, early venture, let's say, and late stage growth venture. Um, you know, in, in other words, like it, it, it's it's not that hard. It's not it's hard, but it's not that hard to raise. You know, a three to five million dollar round. Um, like the funds are out there that can write half million to two million dollar tickets. 
Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, finding a great fund is, is hard to do. Winning, winning the support of a great fund is really hard, but, but like you, you can, you can pull that money together. It's out there. Um, and there are a lot of great business models that are great for economies and, and great for impact that, that actually don't need that much more money than that. Right. Um, that, that might be a, a, a capital efficient business model. Um, Forestry is an industry is is much more capital intensive, as are many other parts of the economy and, and uh, opportunities for impact. Uh, that you know, raising three to five million isn't isn't going to get you that far, and, and really you need to raise you know twenty million and and later much much more to to really get to scale. Uh, and so the tricky thing is that uh, while it's it's fairly easy to raise $5 million. It's also surprisingly kind of easy to raise $50 million or more that there are a bunch of development banks and private equity funds that when you're big enough and proven enough, low risk enough, and, and really just have the ability to absorb and deploy, you know, much bigger checks, that, that that money's also out there, and, and that money's generally pretty deal hungry because there aren't that many companies out there that can can actually raise that much money. Um, so you're seeking five or you're seeking fifty, great. They're they're probably investors for you. But if you're seeking like fifteen to twenty five, you are in trouble. Like there are not a lot of funds that can write checks of five, seven, ten million dollars each. And, you know, then join together with another two or three funds of the same nature to then put together that that sort of middle stage round. Um, and so the tricky thing then is, is a is a company desperate for growth capital. You, you've you've worked your butt off to go out and raise your Series A for five million or, or whatever it might be. Um, you executed really well on that. And then you sort of turn around and you say, all right, I need the next stage of, of funding out there to grow to the next level. Like, where is it? And it's, it's barely there. Um, and so what, um, I mean, just, just to give you an example, Kamaza, two years ago, when we first started going out fundraising, we thought, all right, let's, let's go out and try and raise uh, $15 million. Uh, And it took us about nine months to realize that we would have an easier time raising 25 than 15. And, uh, and so that's that we, we changed the plan, right? We was like, all right, we're, we're, we are now raising 25. We're not raising, and we didn't have a dollar committed, right? It's not like we had, we had 10 million of the 15 committed. We had $0 committed. We realized that telling the story, pitching the opportunity, pitching the growth plans with, a $25 million raise was going to be much more compelling to the investors that actually exist in this sort of middle stage. Um, and what it required to get there was, uh, was a lot of really generous work by investors on both sides. So we had our earliest stage investors um, really continuing to support the company with convertible debt month after month, like pushing, pushing the company up far beyond the point at which they usually would want to or like to, right? They, they, they generally, if you're an early stage investor, your job is to 
find and fund a bunch of early stage companies, but hand off that company uh, once it reaches a certain level of maturity. And so Kamaza had, had surpassed that level of maturity for early stage funders, but we, we had uh, a number of, you know, absolutely Kamaza would not exist today if it weren't for these early stage funders who just continued to back and fuel the company well beyond their typical comfort zone. At the same time, it took a lot of, uh, of, of courage and hard work from later stage investors to start funding Comaza before they usually would start funding organizations like Comaza. So they, they had to sort of reach in the other direction and say, gosh, we, we usually don't write checks for anything less than 20 million. Uh, or, and you're now asking us for five? God, that's, that's a lot of my, I have to put in the same amount of time to, to, to write a $5 million check as I do a $20 million check. Um, but, uh, but I get to deploy, you know, only a quarter of the money. Um, and so, you know, why should I do that? And then also, God, this, this business model is way more complicated, way higher risk, way earlier stage than my investment committee is used to looking at. And so, I, I now have to, you know, really put my neck out and convince the institution that I work for that we should come in really early to go out and uh, and, and you know pull this uh, pull this round together. And I'd say the final note there is like the, it, it's not that these these three funds and, and you know Nova Stars is sort of fourth um, that that they're the only people we talk to. Uh, we spoke to to at least 200 investors to find these four, and um, we had you know that's not like 200 first dates uh, that then quickly narrowed down to a list of four. That was that was lots of parallel paths that we were managing. Um, with with a number of different interested investors and some who said they, they could lead and others who didn't quite have their fund together in time and some that then had a shake up within their fund. And so um, to, 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 to sort of uh, produce a cool press release and fun news that, hey, we just raised $20 million uh, is it, it, one little snapshot in time where we get to celebrate uh, the, the, the hard work of lots of people over the past year. Um, but it, it was only possible because one, we, we've been working very hard for two, nearly three years on this deal, sort of parallel processing all options and, and persevering so many times when it looked like we would fail and we'd have to close the company. How much equity did you have to give away? Uh, yeah, so that's something that actually generally we are advised not to disclose. Um, so it's less that there's like one moment of dilution where you sort of have to have to like really uh really psych yourself up to say it's going to be worth it i'm going to lose x percent and oh that hurts and and it'll all be worth it uh it's it's kind of happening you know with, with convertible debt fundraising in between you're always burning that that down a little bit um i think the the other thing that um that I feel like personally, like my, my own my own psychological journey on that front has actually been stressing less about that over time. Uh, and now, I mean, of course, we, we negotiate really for our previous investors, uh, but I'm I'm not I'm not overly fixated on negotiating for myself as an individual, right? Um, uh, the, 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 if 
the, the, the reason I'm, 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 I'm doing this reason, Tiffany's doing this reason, everyone in the company is doing this isn't, isn't because we want a controlling stake, isn't because we want to make millions of dollars for our own pocket. I mean, of course, like those types of outcomes are all great if and when they happen, but like if they don't happen and Komaza delivers that impact, great, we get to walk away super happy, big smiles on our faces. So it's, it's just not something that I worry too much about. And, and I think instead, like, the, the, the major philosophy is like, I would much rather own a small slice of a really big pie, right, than a big slice of a small pie. And, and I think a lot of earlier stage entrepreneurs, including myself uh, five years ago, were was like very stressed about um, you know what 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 is the percentage of the pie rather than like what is the total size of that that pie um, so so yeah it always hurts it always hurts to get diluted but like eh, they're crocodile tears at the end of the day right how is technology changing environmental conservation efforts in Africa vast majority of technologies other than kind of carbon one one would be kind of carbon capture technologies um but in spite of the fact that carbon capture technologies get oh the majority i would say of the funding natural climate solutions are actually several times more effective um and uh, several times less funded and so we as kamaza um are very invested in what is the most dollar efficient way um to be capturing carbon which is the production of carbon assets so um, in addition to carbon capture technologies, if you look at the conservation technology space, you're also seeing a lot of investments in, as I mentioned, kind of AI um, and broad spectrum satellite technology in order to do remote forest monitoring. Well, if you look at the areas where we work within Kamaza, um, let's even just take our original site in coastal Kenya. Um, the beautiful, what used to be this fantastic, amazing, beautiful kind of coastal um, forest all across um, the, the eastern coast of Africa is almost completely deforested. The, the remaining kind of gems of that original primary growth forest are the Arabuko Sokoke forest to the north and Shimba Hills to the south within Kenya. Um, the rest of that land is, is now highly degraded lands. And so from Kamaza's perspective, um, we, we, agree that continuing to kind of make advancements and we've actually just had a, our first successful kind of AI pilot um, where we are able to use satellite and AI to, to, to be kind of monitoring the, the growth and production of our assets over the long haul of the forestry journey. But what we believe is that you can't look alone at just kind of monitoring and protecting existing natural forests. You have to be finding a way to use technology to be producing new assets. And so for that goal, we, we kind of take a note from all of the fantastic things in the Valley around um, the share economy and ways to use apps in order to be rallying 
so many kind of people who are on the ground and there and available um, in order to produce these new assets. So like what Airbnb does with the kind of use of, of idle kind of rooms in people's houses, what uh, Uber does with the productive use of um, time in, in people's private cars. This is what Comaza seeks to do with the use of idle degraded lands that sit in these deforested areas. Um, we are really looking at how do we use app technology to be able to work with farmers who have these idle degraded lands to help them be as productive as possible um, and as profitable as possible as, as kind of income generating as possible for those farmers. And that's why we've, we've spent so long trying to translate these forestry best practices um, into these types of digital checklists and trainings, um, which we can then use to work with farmers so that they can um, make those lands productive, so they can um, plant their tree farms. And ultimately, the if you look across you know, the 6 million trees that Kamaza has planted to date across 25,000 farmers, um, if I were to show you a GIS map of what that looks like, um, all of those farmers sit around the protected remaining kind of original forests and collectively create a bridging ecosystem um, between the, the, those forests. So we're relieving pressure um, on the forests, but we're also creating this new highly, highly cost efficient, one of the most kind of cost efficient models in the world um, for sequestering carbon. And we're excited about that and we're excited about um, these kind of new tree farms as bridging ecosystems for the, for the species that sit uh, in those original forests. What does forestation in Africa look like in 10 years from now? One of the most exciting trends in conservation uh, is that which is delivered by commercially profitable competitive businesses. Um, you know, it, it, back in the past, conservation was, was really about um, mostly, mostly sort of philanthropic, altruistic uh, uh, incentives and, uh, and, and, that is great, and that's still needed desperately. And when that happens, we should all applaud the people who, uh, who, who, who really flex that altruism to make that happen. Um, and hopefully that happens more and more uh, because the world will be in a tough state if it doesn't. Uh, in addition to that, there are really important uh, environments for conservation that can be and should be addressed by for-profit businesses uh, potentially much more effectively than, than just philanthropy alone could. Um, and so I think what Kamaz is excited to be doing is really aligning both farmer incentives and consumer wood buyer incentives with the sustainable, environmentally friendly options, right? So that instead of farmers uh, thinking, how am I going to send my, my kids to school? I need to chop down these indigenous trees and make and sell charcoal, which is incredibly hard work and produces very little money for them. Uh, and in the process, destroys their soil fertility and local ecosystem biodiversity, et cetera, et cetera. Instead of doing that, hey, I can do something easier. I can plant trees with Komaza. I can then have Komaza show up, harvest those trees. And instead of 
buying them for firewood prices, Kamaza is buying them at, at many multiples higher value per per cubic meter of wood because this is high quality industrial wood that I'm growing. Um, that restores farmers' soil fertility. That is, uh, you know, m- multiple orders of magnitude more cash for that family than they would get from from charcoal. Um, and so, so there's a way to turn what is a downward spiral of unsustainable uh, land use into more profitable, environmentally restorative land use for farmers. And, and that's incredibly powerful. Providing a business model that, that aligns the land users, the farmers, and aligns the market, the consumers, with positive uh, cons- conservation-oriented, restorative-oriented uh, outcomes is, is ultimately a, an incredibly exciting future for conservation. Um, and, and then when you align markets in a massively scalable, multi-billion dollar way, that, that can unlock an incredible amount of good. Tevis there on the exciting opportunities in Africa when ventures successfully apply innovative business models for long-term impact. You don't hear too much about conservation tech on the continent, so Kamaza is pioneering a whole new space. And with millions of dollars now in the bank to help it scale, it will be fascinating to see what the future holds. Developing unique business models and creating real impact is the goal of hundreds of entrepreneurs and investors alike across Africa. A new South African investment firm, E4E Africa, is one of those looking to do just that. Launched last month by six local entrepreneurs, E4E is backed by a founding investment from the SASME fund and has a first close of over $8 million. The fund announced its investment in data annotation startup and labeler last week. In doing so, managing partner Filani Sangweni said the startup was a perfect example of the kind of company E4E wants to invest in, as it combines the latest in innovation and technology with the ability to empower ordinary South Africans. Tom chatted to Filani to find out how the fund supports its portfolio companies beyond simply providing capital. Okay, Filani, welcome to Disrupt Podcast. Ah, uh, thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. Um, it's, it's always been an ambition of mine to, to be part of this. <laughs> As it has everyone's. Um, tell us a little bit about how E4E came about and what brought these, uh, I think it's six well-known local entrepreneurs together. Yeah, so last year I was running an accelerator called Acro Accelerate, where some of these entrepreneurs um, volunteered as, as sort of mentors to the startups that we were accelerating. Um, you know, notwithstanding the fact that, you know, I've known Aisha since our Accenture days, um, and I've known Frederick since we did our MBA together at NCIAG. Um, so we met in Singapore before he moved to SA. So we're sort of already friends, but we identified a need to sort of come together and create a platform for experienced entrepreneurs to mentor and invest in, uh, in early stage uh, entrepreneurs in South Africa. So that's how we came about last year, initially as a angel investor and mentorship platform. Uh, and then the SSME fund offered us the opportunity to formalize as a fund and they became our anchor investor, which we concluded uh, earlier this year. How many investments have you made so far and what does the pipeline look like? Ah, so we've uh, we've formally announced our first uh, investment as a fund um, that came out uh, two days ago in various media platforms, including Disrupt Africa, and thank you for covering that for us. Uh, it's a business called Enlabler, uh, which is an AI and data annotation company 
that basically aims to assist large uh, corporate clients uh, who are implementing their AI strategies with the the very labor-intensive job of data labeling and data annotation, uh, which created an opportunity for this company to create uh, job opportunities for unemployed youth in South Africa to, in essence, register on the platform, download the app, and use the app using their their basic smartphone to label data. Uh, That's our first investment. We've approved two others that we'll be announcing in the next couple of weeks, one in health tech and one in transport uh, slash mobility. All right, we'll look forward to that. Um, as, as a group, you've made uh, one or two investments in, in the past. I think Yebo Ye- is one. Yeah, so yes, uh, when we're still an angel investor platform, late last year we invested in Yebo Fresh, which is a food slash grocery delivery platform for the township market in the South African uh, environment, uh, as well as another business in sort of that uses uh, AI um, to, to assist uh, owners of cars who need their vehicles fixed called Dentex. So we made two investments prior to becoming a fund uh, as the IFOE sort of angel investor group. And what, what are you bringing to the table for these companies in terms of um, assistance from the from the founding team there and access to networks and, and stuff that goes beyond money? Yeah, so so this is, I suppose, you know, for, from our perspective, this is what makes us unique, um, you know, and appealing to a lot of the entrepreneurs that we've spoken to uh, is the fact that, you know, our founding partners uh, are themselves experienced entrepreneurs. Um, You know, so what we aim to do is get actively involved. So in addition to taking a a normal board seat as an investor, we we allow the entrepreneur to be in contact with any of the six of us on specific topics. So for instance, on the enabler example, um, you know, because it's a relatively new company, we, we sit with them sort of every two to three weeks to talk about their sales and business development strategies because that's what's on top of mind for the for the CEO. And we help, you know, of the clients she's identified, we help where we can open those doors, start those start, start conversations, follow up, help them close those deals. Uh, and we're aiming to do the same for for for, for other for the other investment investments that we want to make soon. Um, you know, so we help with strategy, strategy execution planning, and where possible, and actually sit down with the entrepreneur and help them execute some of the stuff. Obviously, not as executives because we can't do that, but you know, work very, very, very closely, hand in hand with the entrepreneur. I mean, in the case of Yebo Fresh, for example, uh, Bass, who's one of my, who's one of the partners, you know, sits with Jessica, who's the CEO of Yebo Fresh. You know, at least sort of every two weeks, and see where we can help. We help source talent where we can. We help interview where we can to get them the best people. Um, yeah, yeah, so whatever help that the entrepreneur needs, we try and provide. In addition to the six of us, we're creating what, we, what we're what we calling now an entrepreneur's club. We'll, we'll come up with a better name, but there's an inner circle of mentors that we've managed to attract, other very experienced entrepreneurs. Uh, and as soon as we announce the entrepreneur's club formally, you'll see some of the biggest names in the South African entrepreneurial landscape. Um, who, who then also share their time mentoring or becoming non-execs or taking part-time te- exec roles when needed in those teams to help them to help them build out what they need to build out. Uh, and beyond that, we've also, you know, spoken to a few corporate executives who are also willing to 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 come in uh, and mentor and a few subject matter experts as well. So we're creating a much wider pool uh, that will probably end up being between twenty and thirty highly experienced individuals who are going to be available for not just the companies we've invested in, but companies on our pipeline that 
we're not ready to invest in yet for various reasons that we think need need mentoring and coaching uh, to get them to a stage where we can actually invest. Um, and this we're doing really as a response to a lot of entrepreneurs who contacted us from from the time we did our first press release to say we want to get involved. Um, you know, we don't necessarily want to run a fund full time, but you know what you guys are trying to do to use entrepreneurship to to improve South Africa, we buy into. So we've had to create this entrepreneurs club in essence as a response to to that overwhelming um, need to you know availability to help from the various entrepreneurs and executives in, in, our, in our in our society. Fantastic. And from the perspective of an early stage uh, founder, how important is that extra monetary approach from the investor side? How you can that add to a, a young business? Yeah, I'd say it's extremely important. You know, in my experience, and I started investing in entrepreneurs when I was still employed by Fundi as their COO. Uh, and I saw a lot of um, entrepreneurs taking money for the sake of money from both strategic investors, because Fundi was acting as a strategic investors in, in EdTech and FinTech, because that's the area we played it. But beyond that, even you know, running the accelerator post Fundi, I saw a lot of entrepreneurs taking just money. And they get disappointed later on when they realize that their investor only sees them every quarter when there's a board meeting without really adding value uh, before. The entrepreneur is generally good at one or two re- things. Uh, and to build a business, you have to be good at multiple things, which is where a set of investors or mentors uh, you know, play a very important role in helping the entrepreneurs fill the other areas where they're not as strong or areas that are blind spots. So, for instance, you find an entrepreneur who's technically very strong, has built a, a technically fantastic product, but they need help on, on commercialization. You know, so if the investor is not willing to come in and help with that, it's counterintuitive because every quarter they'll be, in a way, sort of arguing and fighting with the entrepreneur about how, why the commercialization strategy is not being executed. Um, you know, so the reason we've built IFUE is to try and fill that gap to say, we know that entrepreneurs are not, um, especially early stage entrepreneurs, are not always well-rounded, experienced entrepreneurs. And maybe the teams have a particular strength, but they do need help in other areas to build a fast-growing, um, balanced business, in essence. You know, So it becomes extremely important for entrepreneurs to think about, you know, how is this investor complementing me? Um, and I know it's easy to say uh, as an investor because as an entrepreneur, most of them are looking for money um, and they're desperate for cash and that's what they take. But it's very important for them to take a step back and ask questions about how are you going to add value to my business and why do you say you're going to add value? What's your experience? Uh, what do you know about these particular topics that I think I need help on? Is the launch and sheer existence of a platform like like Eve a sign that the South African startup ecosystem is maturing to an extent with entrepreneurs like you guys starting to pay it forward? Yeah, I think I think it's the start of that maturity. I think there's still, you know, quite a lot of effort from the various partners in any ecosystem to get to a point where I'd say we mature. But I think it's a very positive next step. And, and you know, we're very willing to, to help provide some of that leadership. I think also what I've found is a lot of entrepreneurs have been wanting to get involved somehow with early stage entrepreneurs, but there just hasn't been a platform for them to to do that effectively, where they can see companies that are sort of curated uh, that they can then spend their time um, working on. And and I'm not saying this as a what I think. This is what a lot of entrepreneurs have told me over the last few weeks after after our formal launch. 
Um, but I, but I think you know this is a great step in us getting to a point where we can create critical mass of mentors, investors in entrepreneurship, which hopefully will attract a lot more um, younger and more diverse South Africans to come into the entrepreneurial space, which is something I think we critically need. Talking of stages of development of the ecosystem, a key goal of yours is supporting black and female participation within early stages. I mean, how important is that at this stage of the startup ecosystem's development in South Africa? No, we think it's critically important, uh, not not just from a numbers perspective, you know, representation. I think diversity for us is a key ingredient in, in, in helping solve some of the most pressing challenges that our country faces. You know, if we keep on funding the same type of entrepreneur with the same experience, with exposure to only a certain part of South Africa, um, you run the risk of not of, of funding businesses that are similar or trying to do the same things. What we've seen by casting the net wider, uh, and I must say the fact that we, we in ourselves are a very diverse team, we are able to, to, to see transactions that the other VC funds, unfortunately, are not, are not privy to. And what we're seeing that there's some great innovation that are coming from the underrepresented sort of entrepreneurs, both black and female, because they live these experiences, um, you know, so they've identified the problems and have got an intimate understanding of them or understand the nuances around them. Therefore, in trying to come up with tech and innovation-based solutions to solve them, only they yeah, they, they can actually come up with the best solutions in our view. Um, and I think also just for the long-term viability of the business sector in this country, the more we diversify the pool of entrepreneurs that will become large businesses in 20 years, for me, that, will be, that is actually true empowerment rather than trying to force empowerment uh, on very established companies. You know, building it from the ground up, supporting the guys, building very sustainable, diverse businesses is what this country needs. So, you know, uh, we, 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 we believe in it. Uh, it. It just made sense for us, even when the SSME fund said they, they would like us to do that as part of our mandate. And we're like, yeah, but that's what we want to do anyway. So if you look at, even when we're angel investors, if you look at Yebo Fresh uh, and Dentex, Yebo Fresh is led by, by a female CEO and founder, and Dentex is led by a young black South African guy. Um, so even before the SAC, we find mindless is something we're already doing because we believe that the country critically needs it. So now you're you're up and running with your first announcement um, made. I mean, what, what does the immediate, immediate future hold in terms of um, are you are you looking to raise more capital soon? Do you have a target for the amount of companies you will you will invest in over the next couple of years? Yeah, so that I mean, so the question around the target, we, we think between twelve and eighteen companies, and probably you know, uh, average of fifteen companies will be what we'll be looking to do over the next four years. Uh, and in order to do that, yes, we do need to raise more capital, and we actively raise more capital. So um, we we hopeful um, based on the conversation we're having with both local and international LPs um, that. Uh, we will be we'll get to probably a 400 million rand number um, from a, on a from a total fund size perspective. Um, yeah, so that's what we're aiming for, and we think we'll be we will done by that. We will reach that number uh, by November 2021, which is our final close date. According to the United Nations Development Program. 
4 billion people in 135 countries do not have an official street address. This is even more the case in Africa. With Nimacode, we are trying to solve that by allowing anyone to create a simple and reliable address simply through his phone number. So that next time he is expecting a delivery or he is calling emergency services, he can simply say my phone number is my house address. So far, Nimacode is more than 50,000 users spread across Senegal, Nigeria, Ghana and Ivory Coast. More than 200,000 searches computed on the platform and these numbers keep growing every minute. Whether you're an e-commerce company, an online delivery platform, a right-handed business, a government agency, or a humanitarian organization, if you are dealing with the issue of street addressing in sub-Saharan Africa, we built one of the most comprehensive API in the entire industry. Let's talk. My name is Mohamed Sal. I'm the co-founder of Nima Code. You can check us out at www.nima.co. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Disrupt Podcast. As ever, we hope you enjoyed it. Please remember to let all your friends and colleagues know that they can listen to the podcast on any of their favorite podcasting platforms. For now, goodbye. Bye.